Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest this week is Jim Bertels. Jim is Managing Director at Tiedemann Advisors and head of the firm's Palm Beach office. He's responsible for working with Tiedemann clients and their advisors and developing trust, tax, and estate planning solutions for clients. He also leads the firm's business development strategy team and oversees the firm's relationships with outside attorneys. Prior to joining Tiedemann in 2008, Jim was president and chief operating officer of Brown Brothers Harriman Trust Company, responsible for all trust, fiduciary, and tax activities in the United States. Thanks for joining us, Jim. Happy to be here. Share the time with you, David. So our topic this week is ice cream magnate Tom Carvel. Born Athanasios Thomas Carvalasin in Athens, Carvel was the creator of soft serve ice cream and one of the founding fathers of the franchise system in America. He began selling ice cream out of his truck in 1929 in Hartsdale, New York. On Memorial Day weekend in 1934, his truck got a flat, so he pulled into a parking lot next to a pottery store and began selling his melting ice cream to vacationers who were driving by. In 1936, Carvel purchased that pottery store and converted it into a roadside ice cream stand. This permanently established Carvel as the first retailer to develop and market soft ice cream. That same year, he established the Carvel brand corporation and developed a secret soft serve ice cream formula. The Carvel company specialized in ice cream cakes, often in the shape of animals. Two of the most popular ice cream novelties were Fudgy the Whale and Cookie Puss, and the chain eventually expanded to over 850 locations at its height. Carvel died childless at the age of 84 in October of 1990. He left behind some of the most of the $80 million in proceeds from selling his namesake ice cream chain the year before, as well as real estate, including a golf course in upstate New York and an unknown number of plots in which the 800 Carvel franchises have their kiosks. The fact that we don't know the number of plots should be an early indicator that this estate is going to be a mess. The uh, fighting began almost immediately. So Carvel's estate was a mess for a number of reasons beyond the aforementioned lack of knowledge of the number of plots of franchises. But we're going to focus on is his decision to name seven. That's right, seven executors in his will. And guess what? They had trouble agreeing with one another. So the executors included two main factions. On one side was his widow, Agnes, and his niece, Pamela. And on the other were two longtime Carvel business associates, his secretary, Mildred Archidapaney, and his lawyer, Robert Davis. Now, both Tom and Agnes Carvel signed mutual wills, agreeing to leave their money to trusts set up to benefit charity. Arcadopani and Davis were trustees of the trusts and two of the directors of the Travel Foundation that was to manage the fortune. They 
eventually cut way back on the money Agnes received, claiming they did it to protect Agnes from Pamela, who they felt was taking advantage of her because she was not mentally competent. Agnes eventually resigned her executorship over these questions of her competency, and the surrogate court suspended Pamela eventually after she made $2 million in questionable deposits into Swiss bank accounts on what she claims was Agnes's behalf. Now, Pamela and Agnes, on the other hand, felt that the, this move was calculated to stop their lawsuits, trying to wrest control away from Arkadopani and Davis. And this also had merit. In fact, the Attorney General of New York filed a lawsuit against Arkadopani and Davis for $1 million and seeking, sought their removal from the Charitable Foundation based on improper spending and mismanagement. Because of that, the duo was forced to resign from those positions in 1996. But that didn't even end the fighting. Pamela and Agnes, and then Pamela herself after Agnes died, continued to fight the remaining executors, trustees, and, charitable, and the Charitable Foundation itself. The fighting culminated in, in 2007 when Pamela asked to have Tom Carvel's body exhumed so an autopsy could be performed because she claimed her uncle had been murdered by, wait for it, Arkadopani and Davis. According to Pamela, Tom Carvel had discovered that they had been embezzling millions from the Carvel Corporation and was just about to fire them, but he never had the chance because he suddenly a sudden mysterious heart attack. And Pamela and a private investigator she hired believed that the pair had tampered with his heart medicine and then forged his death certificate. Unsurprisingly, a judge threw this claim out in 2010. Now, this fact pattern is uh, a little bit much, but I'm going to throw it to Jim here. Jim, what exactly does an executor do? So, David, that's an astonishing story. I grew up eating Carvel ice cream, never knew this story. So really interesting and, and sad. Um, yeah, the good, role of an executive... Nice old guy from the commercials, right? That this is how it all ended up for him. Absolutely, absolutely. So the role of an executor, different than the role of a trustee, sometimes sometimes they're confused, but the role of an executor is is mostly ministerial or administrative. And, and that person or institution's job is to collect all of the assets of the estate pay all the remaining bills, pay all the expenses associated with the estate, and then um, and, and file the final tax returns as well as the estate tax return if it's a large enough estate that would require one, and then distribute the assets as, in accordance with the terms of the decedent's will. So oftentimes it's a family member, sometimes it's a lawyer, sometimes it's a friend. I've always told our clients, you don't you don't really do any 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 good service or any favor to your friends by naming them as executor or as trustee. And then once the executor's job is finished, if there are trusts created under the decedent's will, then the trustees take over and, and have a whole different um, set of responsibilities and duties in their role as trustee administering the trusts. So let's expand on that a little bit, right? That was the executor's role in the estate is largely um, administrative, although that is, it's far more complex than that makes it sound. Uh, what is a trustee's role then in comparison? So the trustee's role, I typically describe it as, as being, and you're right, the executor's role often is on complicated estates, much more complicated than I than I summarized. The trustee's role I describe as being discretionary, and and that's where that's where we see most often disagreements among several trustees or disagreements between trustees and beneficiaries. And, and the trustee's role is to, again, f follow the dictate as 
specified under the terms of a trust agreement. So, so take the assets, preserve, invest, and grow the assets. Um, do all of the administrative stuff that's required when you are in control of assets, such as keep the accounts and, and file the tax returns and things like that. But most importantly, hold and or distribute the assets in accordance with the express terms of the trust agreement that the decedent created. And typically what we see in these trust agreements is you can you can keep the assets in the trust, you can use the income and or principal for the benefit of the beneficiary. Sometimes there are certain enumerated standards to follow. Typically we see things like health, education, maintenance, and support. So you can make distributions from the trust assets for those purposes for the benefit of the beneficiary. Oftentimes there are disputes because a beneficiary thinks that he or she is, is entitled to or deserves more than perhaps the trustee would agree with. And that's, that's where the fun begins. Yeah, and a trustee is a very difficult job because as you mentioned, you're being pulled in numerous directions, right? You're sort of, you're bound by the structures of this trust, but also it's a question of, you know, who does the trustee serve eventually, right? Is it, are they serving in the interest of the decedent? Are they serving in the interest of growing this trust corpus or are they serving to maximize what the beneficiaries get? And sometimes the answer right. is all of them and sometimes the answer is all well, none of them because the rules interact in a funny way. Um, I, I, I agree, yeah. And, uh, and oftentimes the trustee, not oftentimes, but occasionally the trustee has a conflict of interest and that just adds more complication to the relationship. So you've mentioned uh, a couple of times that, that you've seen sort of trustee conflicts. Have you ever seen a conflict that resembles anything like this Tom Carvel fact pattern? So I've, I've seen some big ones. I've, when I practiced law um, in, in the early days for the first 19, 20 years of my career, I was involved in some pretty large probate litigations with, with families, with names that, that everyone who's listening to this pod, podcast would recognize because there are nationally known names. Um, but I've never quite seen one like you described with Tom Carvel, where they're exhuming the body and looking for a signed death certificate and getting testimony that the person who supposedly signed the death certificate really didn't sign it. That's, that's startling to me. It's, it, it's, it's quizzical as to why it went that far, but, um, but nothing, nothing of that matter. I, I will tell you though, that naming the significant number of whether it's an executor or executors or trustees is almost a certain recipe for disaster. When you get when when you just name that many executors or trustees, so yeah, let's expand on that idea, right? Because that that's the obvious, I think, like big bright line mistake here. In case we didn't make that clear in the uh, in the story, is that seven is a lot. Um, but for a more so for 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 more typical estate, something that, that you know, what what is, is, is the cutoff is clearly somewhere lower than seven, but is is two too many or is four too many? Like I mean, obviously, this is independent of estates. It, it, depends on the exact details of the estate, but what's the number of trustees and or executors that you see that will initially just make you look closer and be like, why are there this many? Yeah, so, so the, the lower the number, the more efficient um, the process is and probably the less expensive the process is, whether that process is administering an estate by an executor 
or administering administering and distributing a trust by a trustee. It, it, it depends. It's it's very family specific, but um, I would say some somewhere between one and three. We typically don't like to see more than three because um, people tend to disagree about things, and it also becomes administratively more more difficult. Three sometimes is the right number because if you have two, under most states' laws, the two would have to agree on whatever the issue is to to make a decision. And so one could hold up the other and could hold up something from occurring, a distribution from a trust, as an example, by just merely disagreeing with, with the other one when there's, when there's, as an example, two trustees. When there's three, then the typical rule in most states or all states is majority rule. And so even though one disagrees, he or she can't hold up uh, the task from being completed or the distribution from being made. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up this, this idea of not having two, because I think that's unfortunately is very common, right? And it's very instinctually common for, for people to want to do that, right? It's the, I think very one you see a lot is, oh, it's my spouse and my business partner. And these are the two, you know, one knows what I want personally and one knows me best professionally and then they'll work together to do, you know, <laughs> and it's like, well, not necessarily when they can just both completely cancel each other out and cause nothing to happen. Yeah, th I, I, that, that's right. So, so that's the way to think of it is, is if there's two, then it's easy to, to have a stalemate and, and, and nothing gets done. You also have to look, you also have to consider probably most importantly, who the, who the players are, right? And make sure that there's no conflict of interest between, we'll talk about trustees because that's the more, the more of the discretionary role, but between, between trustees. So, so what we, I live in South Florida. We see a lot of second, third marriages in South Florida and, and very often a, um, a, a, a client will say, well, I'll appoint my, my wife or my spouse and then a child from a prior marriage. And that, that often doesn't work as well because they have competing interests and they're not related. Um, sometimes the child from the prior marriage, believe it or not, is older than the surviving spouse or the same age as the surviving spouse. So, I mean, there's all sorts of scenarios that could, that could cause problems. So we kind of spent some time here talking about what we don't want to do. What are some of the more positive causes? Like, what are you looking for if you want, if you're, when you're trying to identify like, oh, this is the person who should be the trustee or this is the person who should be executive. And obviously these are two different roles. But what are some of the qualities right. that you're looking for to, to make a good choice here? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think the qualities are, they vary. And, and sometimes the roles are selected, the different roles are selected to, to fit the various needs in these qualities. So, so you know, business experience or legal experience or financial experience, but someone who has a good head on their shoulders and, and is, is capable of dealing with the business and financial decisions that, that are, or, or legal decisions that are involved in administering an estate or, or a trust. And importantly, someone who's willing to play that to take on that role because it's, it is work. It's in oftentimes with trusts, it's a lot of work for a lot of years. So, you know, it's a significant body of work. The, the other consideration in, in terms of skill um, or expertise is, is knowledge of the familiarity or knowledge of, of the family, the family dynamics, what the client, the testator's intent is, how the testator would have made, made a decision 
faced with a, an issue if he or she was still alive. So very often we see, forget about the number for now, whether it's one or two or three, but um, very often we'll see one professional trustee and one family trustee or someone who who knows the family quite well and knows the decedent quite well and, and has a pretty good sense for how the decedent would have would have made the decision or or acted on the on the issue answered the question so to speak that's that's often a, a pretty good combination whether the number is two or three is a, is a different set of issues but very often in in administering trusts and making these decisions about distributions it's good to have that really long-standing familiarity with the family what about location like in terms of assets and in terms of the person how much does that matter in, in this whole equation yeah good good question i think in this day and age it's really not that important in my our experience it, it really it's not an impediment to have an estate for example, administered in Florida and trusts administered in Florida or Delaware or wherever and and have a trustee who lives in New York and a trustee who lives in California because technology makes it quite easy for people to get together and, and collaborate and make decisions and, and share information. So I, I don't think that's I don't think that's really an issue. It's it's more I, I would say skill familiarity with the family and the types of, and, and the way the, the decedent thinks, um, and, and really importantly, willingness to act. I, I, I will tell you that very often we see people name a, name a close friend, and, and I've played that role in many instances, and it's, it's a lot of work, and it's a lot of distraction, and um, uh, and typically, as I said, you you have to deal with difficult issues, and you really don't do any great favors by naming a friend as as a, an executor or a trustee because of the amount of work. Yeah, and also I think you know, particularly in, in regards to the trustee, there's the issue that you know, they're accepting a fiduciary duty, and I think for attorneys, you know, everyone's of course they are, but I think for you know, if, if you're just naming a friend or a family member or someone who who doesn't have you know, that this sort of involvement in, in a profession that uses you know, fiduciary as a term, they, they don't quite appreciate what that means and, and sort of what sort of responsibility they're taking on and the liability that they're sort of uh, exposing themselves to. Yeah, we haven't talked about that, and that's that's a huge, huge issue. Um, the the probe, as, as you probably know from the series, and as I understand it, you either practice law or a lawyer for years before you got into this business, the, the probate litigation, the trust and litigate, trust and estate litigation bar in, in almost all states across the country has exploded, I guess, because of demographics and, and generational ages. But um, when someone acts as a trustee, there's a, there's a, a very well-defined body of law that sets forth what your fiduciary duties are, and there are many. And it's very easy to have someone disagree with a decision that you've made or an action you've taken and and hire a contingency lawyer to make a claim against you for some some breach of one or more of the fiduciary duties. And so we see a ton of probate litigation and, and you're absolutely right, David. It 
there's a high, there's a large amount of potential liability anytime anyone acts as a trustee. And that's why we, that's why we talk about conflict of interests a lot and in planning with our clients. And you really want to avoid selecting people who could potentially have a conflict of interest in making their decisions. You want to, you want to identify, you want to select people who, who will be able to agree and not be distracted by financial interests. In, in the Tom Carvel estate, it sounds like, like people had multiple different, different interests, financial and, and maybe emotional as well. Yeah, I think the Tom Carvel situation was a super interesting one because it seems like his heart was in the right place, right? Where he's like, oh, this is going to be so complicated. I should have every person represented and have every base covered. But in reality, what happens yeah. is that nothing happens because it's just this cacophony. Um, but in terms of, you know, how do you, when you're talking to clients about this, how do you sort of advise them to, to pick these trustees and make sure that they have, the trustee has, or the executor has this willingness and this, this vigor to take on and understand, you know, sort of what they're being asked to do? Well, I think, I think our role is, you know, whether, whether you're a trust and estates attorney or you're a wealth planning person in a, in a financial firm like ours, and you're talking to clients about estate planning issues and, you're reviewing their wills and trusts and help helping them draft revised wills and trusts or new wills and trusts. Our, our role is to politely and professionally play devil's advocate with, with the client. And so we always talk about what individuals make the most sense, whether there's a corporate, whether there's a role for a corporate fiduciary, um, corporate trust company uh, in, in your estate plan, because maybe it makes sense to have, some someone or some entity that is totally independent and doesn't have an interest on one side or another and doesn't have any emotional baggage that dates back, you know, 10 or 20 years, you did this or, or you didn't do this. And, and it's that resentment has lingered on forever. Um, and then when the, when the client says, okay, well, I think, I think my spouse, I think my children, I think my brother, I think my lawyer, I think my uncle, you know, whomever they come out with. And then we just drill down and we talk about, okay, well, do they want to do it? Do they have the time to do it? You know, some people are very busy in their careers or busy with their families or both and really don't have the time. Um, is there a conflict between any one or more of the people who you are, who you think it makes sense to name? And it's just a, it's a back and forth. It's a continuing dialogue and, 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 the, and the names change over time. So interestingly enough, it, I don't, it's probably no surprise, it's common sense. You, you name someone and then 10 years later, you're looking at your documents and you're revising your documents with your lawyers and, and you forget who, whom you've named as trustee of the trusts that are created at your death. And you're a little bit surprised when you say, I, you know, I named my brother or I named my friend. Well, that really no longer, that's not a good idea anymore. Circumstances have changed. And so we need to rethink that. We need to change that. It should be um, stressed that, that, that when that happens, that, that is a failure on the part of the advisor, not on the part of the client. The client is not supposed to inherently know these things. It's the advisor's sure. job to hammer this home and make sure they understand the import of what they're doing. I think that's right. And that's why I say we, I always use the words polite, politely and professionally play devil's advocate and challenge in a positive way the, the client because as, as I'm sure you can appreciate, some clients are pretty certain in what they want and 
and they think they know all the issues, or maybe they do know all the issues, but you know, they come in guns a blazing, this is who I want, and 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 you listen to them talk and you learn more about the people or the institutions they want to name, and you think, wow, this could this could really cause a problem in the future. So I really need to, to express that to the client and we need to engage in a conversation. I need to try and convince them to rethink this. Some clients are more receptive to that than others. I'm also glad you brought up this concept of the corporate fiduciary because we have on the show talked a lot about, um, you know, a lot of our, our discussions about in the past on the show and on this very episode have been about don't choose, uh, you know, you're, you seem like your choices are between oh, your uncle or between your lawyer. And there's also this other option of the corporate fiduciary where, you know, I think in the case of Tom Carvel, this maybe was probably his best option where you can kind of have your basis covered because it's an organization with many areas of expertise, but that's going to end up speaking with one voice as opposed to having all of your trusted experts who don't necessarily trust each other. That, that's right. Yeah. So it, it's, we have a trust company. It's not, it's not a standalone business. It's something that we, we provide for the convenience when it's appropriate of our clients. I think that's, that's the way to look at it, but um, it, it really does make sense um, for those families who need an independent fiduciary and, and an experienced fiduciary, either because there's no logical choice of anyone in the family um, who has that experience and it's a complicated situation, or you just know your kids are going to fight with your surviving spouse or that your kids are going to fight with each other. And so you need someone who's in there, someone involved who's, who's going to be truly independent and uh, not have an ax to grind. Speaking of kids fighting with each other, that's actually leads us right into my next question. Cause I think that's another very common situation is I have four kids. And so how do I handle this in terms of making them trustees or making them executors? Do I have to, you know, if I, obviously we don't want to make them all equal, right? As we've just said, especially if it's an even number, because that's going to cause perhaps, you know, deadlocks. But right. then what are you looking at? Are you choosing one to, have to be more important than the others? And then that causes its own different issues. So, so what are some of the, you know, if someone wants to appoint a child or their children as, as an executor or a trustee or whatever, I mean, what, what's the best way to go about this? Obviously, despite it being, you know, highly fact pattern specific, but what, what, how do you tend to talk to your clients about handling this idea of, okay, I have multiple children. How are we going to, and I want them to be trustees. How do we handle that? Yeah, boy, we could talk for an hour on that. Yeah, this is whole own episode, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it, it really deserves its own episode because there are there are there's sort of do's and don'ts when you're talking about your children. I, I think, and and let's assume they're all siblings, right? It's not it's not halves and steps and things like that. Yeah, we'll take we'll take the, the quote unquote simpler option of them all being beloved. Yeah, siblings. right. Because then it can really get complicated. So so the 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 scenario it, it often I mean it's, it's very common, right? Multiple kids more than two, I have three or four or five, whatever. Um, general rules are, are, I think, if you want to avoid problems, which most families do, they want their kids to get along well together after they die and they're no longer around, um, is to treat them all equally, both financially and in terms of responsibility. Now, it, it's easier to treat them all equally financially by just dividing up the estate in equal shares. 
um, it's more difficult to treat them all equally in terms of responsibility because maybe they 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 have different career aspirations, they're different kids, they're different personalities and skills, um, and they have different interests. So we started this conversation with saying, boy, you really don't want to you don't want to appoint more than three. Once you get over that three hurdle, bad things can start to happen just because the number is too large. So the best, I think the best solution is to, is to pick, to do one of two things is to pick the one or two or three that make the most sense. And then, and then talk to your children about it, communicate with them so that, so that they're not surprised by the selection or non-selection of a child. And you're no longer around to explain why you did it or, or to talk to them about it and get their input and, and then make the decision. In my experience, the communication, the communication in advance and the knowledge that this is what my father or my mother wanted and, and it was for good reason um, prevents a lot of fights down the road. The other, one other solution is, um, is typically after a person has died and trusts are created for children, instead of creating one trust for, for all of the siblings, create separate trusts for each sibling and his or her family. And then that sibling can be a trustee or co-trustee of his or her own trust. And so, um, so, so you're not having to deal with your sibling. You're not having to go to your sibling to ask for a distribution from your trust because the sibling is the trustee and you're not. And that works really well in the right family, you know, where, where you can sort of, predict that there might be sibling rivalry or, or contention among, among the brothers and sisters. So this area is one of the a very interesting because it's one of those ones where you can really either overthink it and shoot yourself in the foot or underthink it and just let it get out of hand. And, you know, it's especially interesting for me because if I can editorialize for a moment here, um, you know, I have some of my own personal family experience with this where, you know, on, on my, when my mother's father died, there was a family business, obviously nothing like the Carvel empire, but there's a family business that, that, my, that my mother's two brothers were involved in, but my mother herself was not. However, she was named the executor of the estate because she was sort of the most trusted child and because they thought because she didn't have an interest in the business, it would be more accepted when you know, her decisions would, would look less biased. You know, and then they, that's what they thought. But that clearly didn't, it ended up just being a total disaster because she had no interest in the business. So what does she know about distributing any of these things? And it's a, you know, my, my grandfather really like, you know, he thought he had come up with this really elegant way to handle the situation, but actually then that just caused its own whole other raft of problems. This is one of those things where like, it's really possible to, to think yourself into a corner here with some of these uh, trustees and, and executor decisions. Yeah, I agree. And it, and it becomes, as you said, in your, in your family situation, it becomes so much more complicated when a family business is involved. And then you're making the decision of not only who is my executor, or my trustee has to make these, these decisions about the ownership of the business, you know, asset in the trust or asset in the estate, but then, but then who's involved in actually running the business as officers and directors of the business. And that can create a host of problems. We've seen that that as well. Your comment about overthinking and underthinking is an interesting one um, because you can do both. The way we try to deal with that is 
uh, put enough flexibility in the, or ask that we don't draft documents, but ask the attorney to put enough flexibility in the trust agreement so that there are, there are multiple mechanisms for uh, changing the trustees, appointing successor trustees, removing trustees. And then the, the hard question is, okay, who has that power? Who do we give that? Is there an independent person? They're called some of that. Sometimes they're called trust protectors or just other named people in the trust agreement who, who it makes sense to give the power to remove a trustee or, or appoint an additional trustee. But, but we feel it's important to have that flexibility in all trust agreements. So, Jim, we're coming to the, just about to the end of our time here. Um, and, and it's usually at this point, I like to put our guests right on the spot and ask them to take a highly complex um, topic that we've probably already not done proper justice and then sum it up even further. So uh, that's what I'm going to do. We talked about a lot, but in terms of choosing a trustee and, and the importance of you know choosing a trustee, choosing executor, what's the one most important thing that advisors only, if they only walk away from this episode, thinking of one thing in the situation, what, what's the one most important thing that, that they should keep in mind? Boy, it's hard, hard to come up with just one. You do, you do put me on the spot or you have put me on the spot with that. I, I, I would, I would say choose someone who's, who's done it before and is willing to do it again. Simple and effective. Thank you, Jim. Thank you so much for being such a, a great and informative guest. Happy to, happy to, as I said, share the time with you, David. And for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.